0: Good morning church. I was asked if I was planning to sleep during my sermon. Historically speaking, I'm probably not the only one with that plan here this morning. Am I right? We'll use that in a second. Hey, I'm really glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest. Women, we have a a big event coming up on uh, uh, September 13th, the Journeys event, and one of those guests... My mother is out here in the commons today in between this service and class times. If you want to go meet her, I know she would like to do that. If you just want to pay your respects to the woman who made me, you can also (laughs) go do that out there. We were 39 weeks pregnant. And by that, I mean Lindsay was 39 weeks pregnant. And at that point, it was very much my fault, okay, which she reminded me of regularly, So to distract her, because I'm such a good husband, that Friday night we sat down on the couch and grabbed a little yellow notepad and we made a to-do list with Noble when he arrived. And the list includes all kinds of things like um, wrestling, climbing a mountain, taking him to Abilene, Texas, but also one special one, jump off a cliff into water. Okay. So later that night, we had another kind of water experience, and we rushed to the hospital, Okay, and we called her parents, who were in Dallas, and said, y'all need to come to Memphis, this baby's on the way. So they drove through the night to Memphis, and they actually arrived with enough time that they were able to stop at our house and let the dog out to potty. And so they found on the coffee table that little yellow notepad with the list of things to do with Noble, which I wasn't necessarily planning on them seeing right then. And so Lindsay's mom walks into that hospital room as we're preparing to give birth to their grandchild. And the first thing that she says to me, the first thing is, you will not let my grandbaby jump off a cliff into water. (laughs) But here's the deal. He will. (laughs) Because it is the greatest experience a little boy can ever have. And because one particular instance of cliff jumping was the highlight of my very illustrious summer camp career. Okay, It was guys' swim time. The mixed bathing only occurred later in the afternoon, and with turtlenecks or parkas, mandatory. Okay. <laughs> they figured drowning by waterlogged clothing was better than catching a glimpse of a stray wrist. So, but it was Guy's swim time, and we were at this little river swimming, and we rented three canoes from this little riverside rental shop, and we set off down the river out of the eyesight of the lifeguards, and what we found was amazing. It was this giant cliff somewhere between 15 and 1,000 feet tall. Okay? So we tethered our canoes and we climbed up the back of the cliff and we began to hurl ourselves off the top of that cliff and into the water over and over again. Just had a blast. And then on the way back in the canoes, we had this idea. Why don't we bring girls out here and do this again? And so... Word got around, and at mixed bathing time, parkas, turtlenecks, and all, a group of about 50 of us rented every canoe and paddle boat from that little riverside shop, and the summer camp Armada made its way back to that cliff where we tethered those boats, and we began to climb up, and all of us jump off. And because the girls were there, us guys jumped from higher and higher and higher, and and guys, they were really impressed by our manliness, really. I mean, I think I remember them lining up to kiss me and chanting my name, and... At least that's how I remember it. Anyways, nobody got hurt, which in retrospect is surely a summer camp miracle. What was not miraculous was that later that night, the summer camp board called me to a special meeting. It went like this Eric, do you have something you want to tell us? No. I can't think of anything. They said, "Um, Did anything unusual happen at swim time today? Nope. I can't remember anything. Jake did uh, forget his turtleneck, and I saw an elbow. You better rein him in. He's a loose cannon. (laughs) Eric, we know about the cliff jumping. We know. You and your friends won't have swim time tomorrow. You have to be held accountable for your actions. Somebody always tells. In a perfect world, you could take 50 teens and preteens to jump off a cliff, and nobody would tell, but we live in a fallen world. (laughs) Someone always tells As I think back on that meeting with the summer camp board and that guy, whoever he was, that ratted us out, the word accountable tastes bitter in my mouth. Not because they were wrong to punish me, they were right to punish me, but because nobody likes to be held accountable, to be judged, especially publicly. It's kind of like that parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. You remember this? This king wants to settle his accounts with all of his servants who owe him money, and one servant is in deep He owes him a couple million bucks, and he's got no option but to beg for the mercy of this king. And surprisingly, the king grants this mercy. He cancels the accounts. The slave goes away free and clear. This is a great parable, and so far there is zero accountability in this parable, my kind of parable. But then the first servant goes back to this second servant who owes him money, just a few dollars. But the second servant can't pay And so the first one has the second one thrown into prison. And this is where that bitter-tasting accountability starts to creep into the parable, because when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. That is, they tattled. I wish we had the conversation between the fellow slaves and that first slave as they hauled him through the city streets to the king's palace to be disciplined, right? I can imagine how it goes. Who do you think you are to tell on me? Do you think you're perfect? Sam, I know all about that tax return you cheated on. Bob, I know how mean you are to your sweet wife. Sarah, don't get me started on your drinking problem. You are all just as bad as me, and you would have done the same thing. Who do you are? Who do you think you are to tell on me, to judge me, to hold me accountable? You see, that's our problem with accountability. That the ones enforcing accountability are never perfect, and we know it. And though we may not articulate it, we think that because everybody has a fault of their own, they are disqualified from commenting on our faults, right? It's kind of like the whole... How can you remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye with the plank in your eye? We kind of know, based on this passage, that everybody's got a plank in their eye, so we feel pretty good about just saying, Hey, you worry about the plank in your eye, and I'll worry about the plank in mine. And we'll call it even. But nobody tells Peter that. The Apostle Peter. And if there's ever been somebody with a plank in his eye, it's the Apostle Peter. You know, Jesus tells Peter that he's got little faith out on the boat, remember this. Peter's not too keen on forgiveness in Matthew 18, that text that we just started with. He later denies Jesus three times, and Paul thinks Peter is a two-time and people pleaser. So the plank in his eye is substantial, and everybody knows about it. But knowing this about Peter and knowing what we do about accountability, I can't get over this scene in Acts 8 with Peter and Simon, the former sorcerer. This scene has all the potential to play out like that parable in Matthew 18, where one guy is held accountable and is not happy about it. It has all the potential to play out like that scene, but in reality, it plays out very differently. Accountability looks really different in this scene from the early church's life. So let's pick up with it in Acts 8, verse 9. Now a certain man named Simon practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was somebody great. He previously practiced magic. And all of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they listened eagerly to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself, believed. And after being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. Okay, formerly, this guy who amazed everybody else is now amazed at the power within the Christian community. All right, let's continue. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come... Upon any of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving on through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power so that anybody, when I lay my hands on them, may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part share sharing this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. Is Peter a hypocritical judge in this passage? You know, is he this tyrant that is blinded by the plank in his own eye? Is that Peter in this case? Well, based on Simon's response, it doesn't, it doesn't look like it. For whatever reason, Simon thinks Peter is helping him, not attacking him. He takes it really well when Peter tells him to repent, even though he surely knows because Peter has a reputation, that Peter has faults of his own. He's got to know this, but he takes it pretty well. And in addition to this, Peter does not do this very gently. And you would think, based on his history, remember, Jesus calls Peter Satan one time. You would think, based on his history, that he would maybe be a little bit more gentle with this new Christian. But he is not gentle with Simon at all. He reams into Simon. He lets Simon have it, and Simon, for whatever reason, doesn't think Peter is being judgy. He doesn't say, mind your own business, Peter. No, he's grateful. And he asks Peter for more help, to do something else for him. For Simon, Peter is not attacking him. He's advocating for him. He's advocating for him. What Simon does is profound. And it's really changed the way that I think about accountability in my own life. What Simon makes really obvious to me, painfully obvious, is that my problem with accountability is not really your fault or everybody else's fault. And that your problem with accountability is not really my fault or everybody else's fault. That my problem with accountability is me. Now, Now, just a second ago, we said that our problem with accountability is that it always comes from people who have their own set of problems and therefore disqualifies them. From giving it right but what simon chose is, is that that's not really the problem at all that we just say that to mask what the real problem is the real problem is not how accountability is done or who gives us accountability but that we don't have the hearts to receive it our problem is that we don't have hearts that are willing to embrace accountability when it's offered to us and many of us would never seek out accountability outright on our own So forget Peter's personal problems, Simon. Forget his harsh tone. In this moment, he may be offering me advice, accountability, feedback that is best for the kingdom of God, and because of that, best for me. And if I never allow someone like Peter that opportunity in my life, I may never access that best that God has set out for me. You see, we approach Scripture and we're kind of expecting that Scripture is going to lay out the best possible way for accountability to be done, okay, for everybody else. And Scripture does lay out some models for how accountability is to be done, but then there are some biblical models that are totally different. For instance, in Matthew 18, Jesus says when you're going to hold somebody accountable, somebody who's done wrong, Go to him in private, go to him with a couple friends, and then go to him before the whole community, okay? And then he tells a parable right after that in which these servants, which we just talked about, don't follow through the protocol. They just tattletale to the Lord, right? Which is really frustrating. So as frustrating as it might be for people who want everybody else to figure out how to do accountability right with tact and care or to not do it at all, as frustrating as it is for those of us who feel that way, Scripture seems to care less about how accountability is done, and who does it, and more about you having the kind of heart that's open to it. So do you have that kind of heart? Are you open to it? Do you have anybody in your life that is holding you accountable to the commitments you made when you were lowered into that water of baptism? Do you have somebody in your life whose commitment to you is to hold you accountable to your commitments to God? We're starting this series, Circles and Rows, thinking about small groups. That's what Chris preached on last week. We'll do another one next week, and then we're going to switch to rows, which is the image you get when we gather together in corporate worship like this in rows. But circles are the image we grab hold of for small groups. And we've got several kinds of small groups at Highland. We've got men's groups, women's groups, service groups, prayer groups, and reach groups, which are groups of men and women, couples, kids, pets, etc. I learned a lot about small groups um, and accountability in small groups from a gift that Lindsay and I were given right when we got married. Uh, this is a, a quilt that the women of the Cottonwood Quilters group gave to us, the first small group that I really had a lot of exposure to. So I've talked to you before about my little church in Cottonwood, Texas that I minister to, a small church, 12 to 14 people, and all of the women in that group were a part of this Cottonwood Quilting Club that met every Tuesday. Okay. And so I got a lot of insight into this club after we got this gift. I got to spend some time with them at the quilting club and watch how they operate. It's a really fascinating thing. This gift was given to us um, right before we got married, right when we got a dog. And so there's actually some little um, tinkle spots on here from from Tucker, but we still use it. little yellow hasn't stopped us. Okay. So the way that the quilting club works is pretty special. Uh, They would get together on Tuesday morning, early on Tuesday morning, and they would stretch the quilt that they were working on between this platform and all the women would gather around the quilt working on their designated area on the quilt and they all had specific goals that they were trying to do for that day and they would banter about the townspeople and they would talk about things going on in their own lives and in their own families and then at 11 15 promptly they would stop quilting go to the kitchen in the next room because all the husbands would show up from the town to be fed lunch because even on quilting day they couldn't be held responsible for their own lunch okay so they would they would feed the men lunch and then they would go back to quilting Okay, and then, uh, inevitably, as I got to watch this, while they were quilting, one of the women would notice that another woman had made a mistake. Okay. Inevitably. And she would point it out. Okay? And then sometimes, inevitably, a woman would ask for help. And all the other women would raise up from their seats around the s- different sides of the quilt, and they would come to that first woman, and they would all look over her shoulder, and they would give her advice. You know, I think this stitch is the best stitch to use here, or this pattern here this this color here okay that's the limit of my quilting expertise but I got to see this happen sometimes you know if I imagine myself an expert quilter like these women are they've been doing this for years and years and years I don't know that I would be as receptive to that kind of accountability and feedback right I don't know that I would want somebody looking over my shoulder telling me hey you should really try something different here I don't know that I would ask other people who were just peers, people with their own problems and their own history of quilting mistakes, if, if they would give me insight into what stitch I should use, for example. But for whatever reason, it didn't phase those women. It didn't phase them. Even if somebody would call out from across the quilt that they're doing it wrong. And you got to question these women's eyesight, was it really that good that they could see that? But even if they would call them out from across the room, it wouldn't phase them. It wouldn't phase them. They would change it and keep on going. Why? You know how? I thought thought a lot about that because I sleep with this every night, right? How in the world were they that open to accountability? And I think it's because they stumbled onto some really simple truth, okay? They were all focused on making the best quilt that they could make, not being the best quilters they could be. That was not their primary focus. The secondary focus was only contributing to the primary focus, making the best quilt that they could make. And they had stumbled onto this really simple truth that self-centeredness actually prevents self-improvement. And you know that to be true. When you recognize that you're contributing to a bigger project than yourself, you'll be open to receiving feedback in a way you would not have been otherwise. If my goal is to help make the best quilt possible, I'm going to be open to any feedback that will help me do that. But here's the deal. If my goal, goal is to be the best quilter possible, I'm probably not going to be open to that feedback because my reputation is at stake, right? Isn't that true? We've all experienced that. When we're part of something bigger than ourselves, we're willing to have feedback. And when we're all about us, we don't want it. We don't want it. And maybe that's why Simon repents after Peter holds him accountable. You know, maybe he has the bigger picture in mind. He somehow, somehow believes that Peter is concerned about what's best for this new community that Simon has just been baptized into. The whole context of this passage is about this new community that has risen up around Philip, this new community of believers that Simon's now part of. And what Peter makes clear to Simon is that his old habit of power-seeking is now in conflict with his new commitments to glorifying the all-powerful God. He didn't realize that, but as soon as Peter points it out to him, that the well-being of this community and the mission of this community is at stake because of your problem, as soon as he realizes that, he drops the problem, the habit, in an instant. He drops it. Simon sees accountability as advocacy. Like the Cottonwood quilters, Peter is advocating for the community and the goals, the mission of the community by advocating for each of its members, and in this case, Simon, because what's best for the community is ultimately what's best for Simon. Here's what I mean Simon has his problems, but he wants to fix them, both for himself and for his community. So when somebody helps him do that, even though it's not very gentle, even though it's not very kind, he's not angry or bitter, he's grateful. Because that somebody is advocating for the bigger project, the bigger project he ultimately wants to be a part of. Okay, let me tell you another story to make a little more sense of this. I'm a part of a couple small groups. Um, I'm part of a, a reach group that meets on Sunday nights. I'm part of a, a prayer group. I'm part of a um, guys group that meets on Tuesday mornings. And I'm also a part of this special group with three guys that you know really well. Okay. And those three guys are Chris, Breeshan, and Russ. And one of my favorite times of every work week is that we get together on Tuesday afternoon and we plan worship, the worship that y'all are experiencing now. And so we talk about videos, we talk about song selection, we talk about communion, we talk about our sermons, we give each other feedback, we process through it. But we also just laugh a lot, we poke fun at each other for different things that we've done or failed to do, and there's been a lot of those things. But here's the deal, in that group, there's a lot of feedback offered, and sometimes I might seek it out. You know, for instance, I might ask Brecian or I might ask Chris for an advice on what to do in a certain situation. Maybe it's a, a pastoral situation. Maybe it's advice on a sermon. Maybe it's just advice on how I'm um, living as a man, a Christian follower of Jesus. I trust these guys. I'm going to ask them for that advice. And then also, sometimes they offer feedback to me, and I offer feedback to them that was unsolicited. I didn't ask for it. And that's the kind of advice that, if possible, can kind of barbie in your side, right? The kind of trouble you, the kind of advice you're, you're not really ready for. But in that group, it doesn't phase us. Because what we know is that each of us has the interest of this community and the mission of God in this community in mind. And that any feedback we get is helping us to be the best that we can be for the community that we serve, okay. for the mission that we're part of, that we fall in line with. Okay, now I know. Here's what I know. Some of you don't feel like your life is probably as intertwined with the life of this community and the mission of this community as Breesh and Russ, Chris, and myself. But here's what I want you to know. The voice that's whispering that in your ear okay, is the same voice that's saying, hey, you don't need anybody to hold you accountable. You're doing pretty good on your own. You're doing pretty good. Well, who wants to do pretty good? Right? Who wants on their tombstone... He did pretty good. She did pretty good. You don't want that. You want to be great. And more than that, you want to be a part of something that's great. Right? You want to be a part of a mission that's bigger than you, of a vision that's bigger than you are, of a community with a mission and vision that are both bigger than you are, but you have these individual gifts, these specific gifts that I don't have, that Breesh and Chris and Russ don't have. You have these specific gifts that this community needs, but you, like us, just need, on those gifts, some of that refiner's fire. They need to be honed. They need to be trained, and just like me, you have these weaknesses that need to be rooted out of your life, weaknesses that are keeping you from fulfilling your purpose in this community to the extent that God designed you a community on a mission of showing the whole world that they're meant for more more love of God and more love of others like those cottonwood women and their quilt we have this mission that is a lot bigger than any one of us any one of us but because it is such a huge project it demands a lot from each of us from you and it sounds counterintuitive but we have all seen it to be true the more you focus on yourself and ignore the insights, the accountability, the feedback of others, the harder improving yourself is going to be. You you may never access your best if there is not somebody in your life who is helping you find it, somebody holding you accountable. And here's the deal. I have not discovered that accountability any more deeply than I have in small groups. Small groups of people I've grown to trust, rely on, and hold them accountable. The accountability I've discovered in small groups has been absolutely life-changing, and I would not be doing what I'm doing today were it not for small groups. Okay, what we all need are people in our lives who might be flawed and broken people like Peter who are still willing to speak into our lives and advocate for the mission of God at Highland to help you follow Jesus. The way that they do that is by holding us accountable. And we all know that sometimes that accountability might taste bitter, we might not like it, but the reality is it will help us be the best we can be for this community. And so here's my question, why would you wait for that? Why would you kind of just wait for that to naturally happen? Why wouldn't you seek it out? If you believed in the mission of God at this place, you would. You would relentlessly seek out accountability. And I think the easiest place to discover that is in small groups. And we've got those uh, small group sign-ups out there on the table immediately when you exit today. Again, we have groups for men, groups for women. Some of these are new groups that are starting up. We have service groups, prayer groups, reach groups, which are groups of couples and families and singles I really want to encourage you to sign up because accountability is not the enemy. We are the enemy. But God has designed each of us to contribute to this community in a special way, and accountability just helps you discover that.